The world's largest outdoor saltwater pool is now open at Palisades Amusement Park. Come on over. I uh, hate to interrupt this fiasco this way, you know, so calm and so easygoing. But uh, I, me, Gene Shepard, old friendly, reliable chef, I'm on vacation by uh, request of the management. They said, get the devil out of here. You're beginning to get on our nerves. So I am on vacation this week, and all this uh, stuff you've been hearing for the last uh, X numbers of minutes, I presume, has been me on tape from the limelight. Uh, We have selected one of our least offensive tapes to play for you tonight, and we hope that you're getting a moderate charge out of it. I certainly am. You know, there's nothing like being transcribed. Wouldn't it be great if your whole life could be transcribed and you could go on a lifetime vacation and just play that tape at the agency and let it go and they'd keep sending you the checks? Well, that's what I've done. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. Well, let's get back to this thing and see how it goes, shall we? Hold it. Now. You can see why dictators get gray. You get them all well-trained, and what do they do? They all leave for the little room under the stairs at the crucial moment. All right, let's hear the password, gang. Go! You fathead! Oh, boy, what a fiasco. You can tell this is, a, this is definitely a holiday. Hey, you know, uh, it, it's more than that. Uh, we're, we're back at the limelight now in Sheridan Square. And uh, do you think we can get any more in here tonight, Kel? Yes. All right, everybody who's listening, come on down. There are plenty of seats, right? Come on down. Come on down. Oh, what a rotten trick. I can see guys racing down the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> uh, it's like the time we formed the Human Pyramid out of Jones Beach. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, were any of you there? No. Well, I want to tell you what happened one Saturday on the air. I said, now look, there must be at least 40,000 of you out there who are secretly buried in little piles of sand at Jones Beach and have got a transistor radio. Now you're surrounded by the klotzes. You know, the Jones Beach knuckleheads. With the hot dogs, you know, doing the muscle stuff and walking around with the rock and roll on the radio, you know. I says, now, the reedy confuse him because one thing that the klutz has got in his mind is a firm belief that he understands everything about the world. The true knothead really believes there are absolute answers, and he's got them. Have you ever seen the editorial policy of the Daily News? <laughs> I remember reading one that simply, the entire foreign policy was, bomb them! You know, <laughs> that kind of simple thing. And it must be nice to have the world in little things like that, you know. It's just a great feeling. Uh, really, I think ignorance and klotzhood To have cottage cheese between the ears must be the greatest of all blessings. Really, maybe a little yogurt thrown in. 
maybe just a touch of plastic to hold it together, and to sit out there and think that Smiling Jack is really a good comic. <laughs> I love this. I, I, have you ever wondered, have you ever gone over to a Smiling Jack fan sitting there, you know, on BMT looking at that? And you go over and you say, that's very good. Do you read Peanuts? These Peanuts never eat them. They get in my teeth. Well, one Saturday morning, this is exactly what happened. I said, now listen, let's really make these guys get scared. Nothing scares a, a true klotz more than the unexplained happening. No, seriously. He figures he's got it all figured out when suddenly something happens outside of the norm of what he thinks the world is. You know, this is, this is very confusing to the guy that's doctrinaire, the real klutz. So I says, now listen, all those guys that got the rock and roll going and those guys that are watching the Yankee games, and I'm on Saturday morning, see, it's, it's morning, Jones Beach, it's about 11th, it's a beautiful day, you see. I says, all those guys that can hardly wait for the ball game to come on and that are going back and forth to the hot dog stands, let's prepare a little gambit for them. Don't say anything, and when I give you the cue, don't say a word. All of you arise as one man, carry a white towel, at the count of three, wave it in the air without saying a word and walk, walk towards number six beach. All of you, those at number six beach all stand at attention and wait for the others to arrive. And then I will give a command and at the command we will all form silently and with great style a human pyramid. Watch the klutz's faces. I predict within 30 seconds the fuzz will be on its way. Well, here's what happened. I gave the cue. I says, all right, now let's go. Keep your radios turned down real quiet so they won't know. Okay, now. All of you on your feet now. One, two, three. Wait now. Go! And with that, this great army rises. They all stand. I says, face the ocean now for one moment, as though you have a mission, a deep, mystical mission. Now, at the count of three, wave your towel symbolically three times toward the ocean. All right, now, one, two, three, hold it, wave. One, two, three. Now, towel down at side with a snap. That's it, down. Now, all of you right face and walk slowly with great deliberation towards beach number six, saying not a word en route. Absolutely straight face, walk now. There was a silence. And I'm in my studio over here on 1440 Broadway, you know, right in the middle of a hot, sweltering city, and somehow I could feel the electricity. I could just hear the sound of countless feet scrunching through the sand. I could hear the sound of guys saying, hey, what, what, what the devil is that, Mac? Where are they going? Where are they going? And then I said on the radio, I said, now listen carefully. I said, you will notice some of the klotzes are beginning to rise and they're falling in. 
And sure enough, guys with bikini bathing suits were getting up, you know. I says, now keep going, and in ten minutes, I will give the human pyramid command, which will be one of the big events in the state of New York this year. It will be reported in every police blotter on Long Island. I said, now, all right. The minutes went by, and I could see those fantastic columns of people just walking, holding their towels carrying their beach balls, just walking. And then, ten minutes later, I said, all right, all of you now get ready. On my command, face the ocean together. Face. Now turn all the way around, and at the count of three, pyramid. One, two, Three, go! And now uh, let's go up to Fred Feldman for the traffic. <laughs> and this Fred is up there in his helicopter over Long Island. And he is flying out over Queens Boulevard. You can see Jones Beach down there. And Fred, you can hear the funny thing in his voice. You know, you can't, you can't describe a traffic jam on the beach with 18,000 people. <laughs> No, he's watching. Well, let me tell you, there was a 7,000 people high pyramid. It just slowly formed, pile after pile, and then suddenly from all points of the compass you could hear sirens. And one of my spies is in one of those little hot dog stands up there. He says, Shepherd, he says, for God's sakes, you ought to see it out here. He says, the fuzz is pouring out of the administration building. They got flamethrowers. <laughs> so, so don't tell me, you know, I'll tell you that, that, that when it finally wound up, did I ever tell you about the time we had the great towel waving? Let me tell you what happened there. I said, let's face it, there really are two kinds of people. There really are. There are those klutzes, and, and there's us. <laughs> Nothing makes the audience feel better, you know. <laughs> hey! We're the very hip people, aren't we, gang? Of course. We're certainly the in crowd, aren't we? Yeah, 75 cent hot dogs, you're sitting here. Where do you... Well, I, I, on the air one day, I says, listen. I says, you know, there has been more than one marriage broken up more than one human relationship busted up because the people do not recognize, really, that there are two types of people. There are the guys that believe it all. I mean, who go to the World's Fair and they stand outside of the Bell Telephone building and say, ain't that pretty? <laughs> and they go to that... Chry Have you seen the Chrysler building? It was like a big plastic V8 motor there that needs a valve job. It's standing there, you know. There's those guys, and then there's the other guys. You know, they really are. They're, they're just two kinds of guys. So I said, wouldn't it be great if you knew, you know, other people like this? I said, here it is. It's a Saturday morning. The whole crowd is, they're all out. They're all over the country. They're driving around. They're playing rock and roll. Wherever you are now at this point, wherever you are, wave a towel and look around. Well, 
they started to wave towels. They were waving towels up in New Hampshire. They're waving towels down in the Bahamas. But one fantastic thing happened. This is an actual truth. A guy, I got a long letter about three months later. There's a guy laying on his roof right here in Manhattan. It's a hot, rotten day, you know, and he's got the transistor. And so I say, jump up and wave your towel. Well, there he is, you know. <laughs> he was using his towel for something else, you know. So he says, okay, if it's forgotten country. So he whips his towel off and he, he starts to wave. Well, I'm telling you the truth. Don't lie. It's a very interesting thing. About seven blocks away, he sees another roof. The towel going... It is a chick. He said he had the greatest Saturday of his life. Well, I just thought you ought to know there's a lot of stuff going on out there. Hey, you know, speaking of that, we're all sitting around down here. Let us, let us pause just ten seconds and think inside of your mind just for one ten-second moment of all the fantastic things that are going on right now. And you're eating pizza. Think of it. No, seriously, think of all these things. Now, we will give you another ten seconds to mull something over even more important. Of all the things in the world, anything you know of, if nobody knew and you could get by with it, what most would you like to be doing right now? Well, what's the matter, gang? I can see one guy sitting down there. He says, yes, I'd like to be renting a rowboat on, on uh, Diamond Lake to fish for sunfish. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating how our minds work? I'm sure that all of you thought of, uh, I'd like to have a uh, caramel corn. Right? <laughs> oh, yes, it's very subtle. The fears that run through us. Look at, look at how embarrassed everybody looks. What's the matter, gang? Well, the fears that run through us are very basic. Yes, it is true. <laughs> He says to his friend, it's true. <laughs> Notice his glasses are clouded up. <laughs> he was thinking of having a big triple dip ice cream cone. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, though, the fears that run through us are very subtle fears, you know, like this kind of thing. We don't even have to discuss that. Wow. No, the fears are, are very deep. I'll never forget one time when I'm a Boy Scout. Somebody asked for a Boy Scout story. Well, I'll tell you a Boy Scout story that's very closely connected with this problem. I am a kid, see. I'm a city kid. Now, city Boy Scouts are very different from the kind of Boy Scouts you read about in Boy's Life. The Scout Handbook, you know. How are you going to go out and mark the north side of birch trees? <laughs> You know, in South Chicago, it's very tough, you know. 
How are you going to go out and blaze a trail through the stockyards by looking at moss? There was plenty of stuff to look at in the stockyards, but it wasn't moss. Well, so there we are, you know, we're in the middle of this world, and, and we had this great scout leader named Mr. Gordon. And Mr. Gordon was a very early Mr. Peepers. And, and he, you know, there's nothing more, I'll tell you, scout leaders are very funny guys. Most of them are guys who at one point or another, it's very hard to describe them, but they have an officer complex. They, they feel like it's a little quasi-military. Oh, yeah. They pretend, you know, they're interested in the boys. But what they like to do is say, All right, attention, gang. Get out your ropes. Tie, sheep shank. Tie. And the kids are tying. You know. Oh, yeah. I, I was a member of the moose patrol. Great big fat moose, the nose hanging down. Everybody else was in stuff like the leopard patrol. <laughs> I'm in the moose patrol. Big, they had the worst patch in the world, a big fat moose. And our patrol was like that, you know, kind of fat and messed around. And, and, and I was in the moose patrol. Well, well, every Wednesday night when we would meet, we would have assignments. Like Mr. Gordon would say, now we're going to work on the bowline knot. I want all of you to be able to crack that bowline knot. I want to be 13 seconds, like, boom, like that. I want you to know the granny from the square knot. How many of you still can't tell the difference here? Any of you like to have a few tricks in tying the square knot as opposed to the granny here? See, this is, this is a boy world. It really is. Women are looking at me dumbly and saying, when you start talking about something important... And every male here knows the problems of kids that can do stuff. Kids that can make things. They make great model airplanes. And yours has got all the lumps on it, you know. And they got that stretched tight skin, those other kids. And you never could figure out how to get the paper without the wrinkles all over. You'd spray it, you know, and stand back and it would go, whoop. Girls don't know about that, you know, stretching paper. Well, we used to have things like kite contests. And I would go home, you know, and I'd make a kite. It'd take me like three days. And I'd go out and I'd get paper and i make the whole thing. And i come back with my kite, you know, my little kite like this. I've worked on it, I've sweated. And in would come Watts. He's got this fantastic kite that looks like a biplane. <laughs> Has birds hanging on it, you know. Twenty minutes later, it's four miles in the air. And I'm standing with my little kite. Well, this is a boy world. Well, the Boy Scouts all revolve around that. And one of the important things during the Depression... I was a Boy Scout during the absolute peak of the Depression. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, really like owning a, a, a hat with a, with a helmet and the goggles, you know. This was a major wearing apparel item. And, and the idea of owning a Scout uniform was just, you know, it was, it was just theoretical. And you'd, you'd get boys' life, you know, and you see these kids with the big hats, with the neckerchiefs and the stuff and the pants, and they've got all stuff hanging here, canteens. You know, look at it. All I got is a pair of knickers, see. And, and I'd pull them tight so they looked like those high-water pants, you know, pull them down, pull your socks up. So I began to gradually, like all the rest of the kids, you know, you'd, you'd pick up little items. Like for a birthday, I would get a neckerchief which is a big gold and blue thing that goes around, you know, and you'd make a sheep's horn helmet thing goes up like that, see, the slider. 
And I'd go there dressed in my corduroy pants, my helmet with the goggles, my sheepskin coat, and my neckerchief. Pack <laughs> it down. My one item of apparel, I'd stand there. And there's always about three kids that got the uniforms in every troop. You know, it's been, for years, it's been my real ambition to own a formal suit. You know, the kind you can wear to functions. I, I, then I don't have to go to these joints on 6th Avenue anymore, you know, stand there. It's very embarrassing. Women don't rent clothes. I don't think women have ever had the indignity of wearing a, uh, of wearing a suit that 65,000 guys have worn before you. <laughs> And God knows what they have done in them. <laughs> I'll tell you, one time I rented a tuxedo and I wore it all night. And then without thinking, I stuck my hand in the inside pocket. It was fantastic. <laughs> what happened in that pocket, I can't describe here. I, all night I'm standing there with my coat pulled up. You know, I can't figure, who was this? Was this King Kong that rented his coat? What was it? I don't know women ever renting clothes, but men have all known this indignity. And, and I remember one time going up here to 6th Avenue, one of these places, see, and I go in and I say to the guy, i got to have a suit. You know, I was doing an MC job someplace where they have the, the lapels and the black tie and the whole jazz. And I go, this actually happened to me. I go in there, the guy measures me. He goes back. Now listen to this, women. This is something you will never hear described because the men who you go out with dressed in those things do not tell you what has gone on before nor how much it costs just to rent that rotten cheesecloth coat. Well, I'm standing there waiting by the mirror and there's a couple of guys with high hats. You know, it's really funny to see little fat guys putting on big high hats. You wonder, what the devil are they going to? You know? Putting on big hats with white coats and their things are popping out and they got little black buttons and they walk around. Well, I'm standing there in the middle of this trying to look like I always do this. You know, you try to look casual. And the guy says, you want a shawl draper straight around? Shawl draper straight around. Uh, uh, shawl draper. I said, shawl drape. There's a pause. He says, shawl drape, are you sure? And immediately I can see myself wearing something that Lincoln might have worn, you know. <laughs> I guess it's stole pipe hat, you know, the things with the big tails hanging out. And I say, no, uh, better make it this time straight, straight. And he says, you sure? <laughs> this is what happened. I'm telling you, I don't know anything about evening clothes, you know. So I says, yeah, all right. Can I make it straight? Yeah. So he says, gee whiz, I don't know what I got your size. I don't want to get your size, man. And then you hear another guy named Sam in the back. There's always these guys behind the scenes there. He says, he says hey, Manny, that uh, number four just came in. Is this his size? Give it to him. And the first guy says, well, I don't know. Is it ready to go out? He says, no, we'll have it ready. And he brings this suit out. And he looks at me and he says, this just came in. We'll have it cleaned and fixed up before tomorrow night. I don't know what happened to the guy wearing this suit. It must have been a gang war. I'll tell you, it was covered with stains like I never saw outside of a gangster movie. And he holds it up behind me. You know, he's holding it up and I, I'm looking in the mirror. He says, right across the car, he says, okay, 
Okay, it's 40, straight ahead, short, medium, uh, 32, right, okay. And he takes it. And I, you know, I don't know what to say. Gee, I don't like that one with a bullet hole there in the shoulder. Uh, you know, it's terrible. I mean, what happened to that guy? What do they do to him? Is he all right, you know? And, and I, you don't know what to say. And I says, well, well maybe you better try the, 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 the drape around model. He says, all right, all right, let's go, next one. And they're always in a hurry. These guys, isn't that true? These guys give the impression that you're lucky to get it. You're very lucky. And the last one of your model just went out, and they have dug this one out. It's the owner's own suit. You know, I kind of think. So I am down on the street. I'm worrying about this. And the next day I go in, you should have seen that suit. Beautiful. It's got cellophane on it. It's all sealed, you know, all around. The white coat is just laying there. I don't know whether they vulcanized it or what. I put that suit on that night, you know, and somehow wearing a gangster suit. I'll tell you, it gives you authority. In fact, I wondered why the, why the tuxedo manufacturers don't say the Al Capone model, the Tony Martin model, you know. Well, let me tell you what happened with the Boy Scouts. This is all part of that world, the, the, the world of men's clothing, which you never hear discussed in books. Women talk about their clothing by the hour. Men do not ever discuss it, really. Well, getting this Boy Scout uniform was like climbing the pyramids to me. And I remember one birthday. My birthday is in July. And I am hoping, I'm just frantically hoping, that I'm going to get a uniform. They're going to get me the whole thing with the shirt. And that afternoon, the package, they sing happy birthday to you. And they've got the cake. And there's a big box. And I open it up, and there is a pair of corduroy knickers. I'm telling you the truth. And my mother says, I want you to go down to the store and pick out one piece of Boy Scout equipment. That was a big gift. So down to the store I go two days later and I'm standing there. Now, I don't know what it is with men. The first thing that a man will pick, strangely enough, is a hat. Hats have great symbolic meaning to men. Oh, they really do. A general is nothing without a hat. That's true. Any hat that you have, and I don't wear hats, but somehow putting a hat on means something. It really does. It's a subtle thing. And, and throughout all the centuries, the mystique of hats has been written about. And so right there in the middle of that case is a real Boy Scout hat. What a hat. Now, you remember that hat that they had with the big flat brim? A beautiful hat? Yeah, it was a big hat, felt hat had a big Boy Scout emblem on the front, and it had this braid that came around, you know, with the two little things. And I said to the guy, I'd like to see the hat. And he looks at me, and he says, all right, and he reaches in, picks it up, over the counter, and I take this hat, this felt hat, and I could smell it. Oh, boy. Smelled new, and it's got a solid feeling, heavy. It's got leather inside. I put this thing on, you know, stand there. He says, it's very good on you. He says, you make that hat. You look very good in that hat. And I stand back with that hat on. 
it sets down over the ears. I can feel that badge. And I'll tell you, there was never anything in my life I fell more in love with than that hat. I said, I'll take it. It's great. He says, it fits you. My ears are like this. You know? He says, it fits you. And then he says, shall I put it in a bag or will you wear it? Well, you know, kid, do what's wear it. I says, well, put it in a bag. I'm thinking of myself going out and taking it, you know, putting it on. I want to be cool. So he puts it in a bag, he clips it, he's writing the thing out, and he says, that will be 1150 please. I had two bucks. Two big bananas. This was the depression. My father was earning $31.50 a week. He was earning $31.50 a week for ten and a half hours, six days a week, and I knew it. Most kids don't even know how much their dads earn, you know. Well, one night at four in the morning, I heard a gigantic argument in which the subject came up. And it had bothered me ever since. Oh, it's terrible. I heard my mother say, what are we going to do? You only earn thirty-one fifty a week. We can't get another used car. And the old man says, thirty-one fifty. a lot of guys are not working. What do you mean? She says, you're barely working. You're just hanging on by your feet. And I'm sitting there, ooh. I'm in my bed hearing this. You know, my old man is barely hanging on by his feet. You know, you don't want to know about these things. Money, money, thirty-one fifty. I've got two dollars and the hat. And I say to the guy, well, uh, maybe, maybe it's too big. And he says, well, all right. I think immediately. You know, men are uh, grown-ups, can read. I think immediately he realized this kid has not got the scratch and he's going to let me down easy. You know, he's not going to say, all right, come on, kid, you don't have the money, don't bother me. He says, listen, he says, I've got another hat. He says, hold on. He goes back and he comes out with one of the cloth ones, you know, that you pull down the overseas type. This was known as the fatigue scout hat, you see. And he says, try this one on. So I put it on, but let me tell you, it ain't the same thing just ain't so I put it on and he says gee that looks a lot better than the other one he says that really looks good on you come on come over here he says put it on put it on a tilt so I put it on I'm standing there he says that's beautiful he says that's the hat that big hat makes you look like you're all ears you don't want to look like a little fire plug with feet <laughs> he's convincing me and I'm saying well yeah 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 and he says and that hat is only 75 cents so I says uh oh I could get out with my feet dry. So I said, oh, well, all right. Uh, so I take out a buck. He gives me a quarter back. And he says, anything else? Anything else? You know, we saw my dollar. And I says, yeah. Um, do you have any second-class pins? I'm a second-class scout. Now, girls, you don't know about that. But many a man grew up only a second-class scout. They had ranks, they had everything in the Boy Scouts, and I was a second class, so I buy a second class pin, and I go home. And then it began. Once you start on a thing, once you have a taste of the official, you can't stop. Up to that point, I had made peace with the patrol, you know? But now I want the suit. It's terrible, it's terrible. 
Believe me, I know why guys with $40 million want the 41st. It's terrible. Guys with no money don't really worry about it, you know? It's true. They walk around and scratch. The guys with the dough are really the guys that are working. Have you noticed that all the big multi-billionaires are always yelling that the taxes are too high? You notice that? You never see an old, you know, little old guy working for $42 a week on a Boy, them income taxes. Oh, man. Oh, the income taxes. It's very gold water all the way for me, I say. I'm an Ayn Rand man, boy. Yeah. Listen to the gold water nuts here. Well, and they've all made it. You notice that? They're the snotty ones. Well, the fascinating part of it all is, of course, I was tasting the hat, you know, and the thing, and I wanted the uniform. And I began to develop an insane desire to own a scout knife. Now, the scout knife, a knife like a hat, is very important symbolically. Have you ever walked up and down, even in Abercrombie and Fitch, the most pleasant of stores? This is, this is the most esoteric of non-sporting stores in the world, you know? <laughs> Always in the middle window is a collection of giant hunting knives. Have you seen that? Great big toad stickers. You know, you can't imagine this, this Ivy League guy walking in. You know? That little black suit, you know, the little tie with his $40 shirts. He says, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, in the center window, uh, <clears throat> uh, next to the uh, giant inflatable Queen Mary there that... Uh, <laughs> And the, the, the man who looks like C. Aubrey Smith says, you mean <clears throat> the toad sticker? <laughs> and he looks around, he says, yeah. And ten minutes later, he's got it in his hand. He says, I'm just shopping. <laughs> he's looking for one with a curved blade <laughs> with barbs on the end, you know. <laughs> I'm serious. Have you ever, have you ever in your life hefted an executioner's axe? Well, I have a friend who was the curator of a museum in Philadelphia. One Saturday, when the museum is closed for repairs, I am going through this thing and they've got all the stuff. You know, you're used to seeing this stuff in cases. You ought to see it when it's laying there. You ought to see it when there's a skeleton of an Egyptian there and he's all twisted up, you know. It's right out there. You step over him, you know. And it's really there. And we get into this medieval armor. He says, look at this. Look at this stuff. And it's fantastic. All the men love to go to the armor section over here on 81st. You ever been in that place? Oh, it's fantastic. German armor, you know. Can you imagine yourself going in with a Saxon knight's chainmail, breastplate, buskin, and helmet Monday morning into the office? <laughs> Just walk in, you know, with your big plume behind you. Now, that's all right, honey. Your big plume flying behind you, you know, and you've got a halberd. And swinging here is a 74-pound mace <laughs> with the big knob on the end with the thing sticking all over it, you know. I'll tell you, there must have been a great joy and you know, like this, boom! <laughs> and they'd say, Sir Mordred has a fantastic follow-through. You know? <laughs> Look at that backswing. Boom! He's going like this. And then they bring it around again. Have you ever seen those medieval knights work? We have an idea about knighthood and flower. Wow! Let me tell you, those guys carried things you wouldn't believe. And I'm walking around in this section, see? 
And right there is an executioner's axe that was an old English true antique artifact. It's got a handle like that. The end of this thing, it, it has its blade, you know, that goes like this. You know? And he says, pick it up. Well, that thing felt better than a beautiful, well-balanced Stan Musial hill brick slugger moth. These guys, you could see these guys carrying it home, you know, polishing it. I pick this thing up and I give a couple of... You know, wow! I'll tell you, the whistle of an executioner's axe is an absolutely, unbelievably poignant and it's an unforgettable sound. You know, like that. It staggers around. He says, no, they didn't use it that way. He says, watch. And they have this big block, an executioner's block. He says, watch. This is the way it went. He'd say, you put the, uh, <clears throat> the subject's head here. On this side, see, and over here with his body, and over here's a basket, see, and out here is sawdust, and over here's the crowd, all waiting. Over here's the king. He says, they stand at attention, and then when the command is given, they are wearing a thing, you know, with the eyes. That's also a good feeling, wearing a mask. Why do you think all these secret, rotten societies wear masks? gives you a real sense of power, a mask. Do you know that, that being able to identify another man is a way of taking away a kind of power that we all have? To be known is somehow to be attenuated, to be faded down. This is why so many GIs walking into a town unknown did things they never in their, their skull would think of doing back home in Hessville on the Grand Concourse. I wonder how many guys who were in the Army got things sticking back in their mind of stuff they did on Saturday nights in little German towns or stuff they did while walking along the road one day on a hot, dusty afternoon while the infantry division was on the advance and these civilians, oh boy, we are interesting creatures. And so he says, look, it is done this way. They pull the mask down, they stand at attention, and the official reads a Latin inscription, A mortis in and mortis in est spitalauk. He says, then you face the crowd and bow. This is the way the executioner did it. This is the Mickey Mantle of his time. <laughs> He's known as Old One Swipe Mordred <laughs> with the fantastic follow-through. And then he stands at attention and bows to the uh, subject and then takes his axe and holds it thusly. He places his left foot forward. This is really the way they did it. And he lays the axe about an inch and a half above the vital spot just like this. He looks down, then usually step back for a second. They were all showmen, you know. <laughs> Wipes his hands, picks up a little dust, 
kicks the dirt from his cleats, <laughs> steps forward. This is really the way it was done, though. And then it went back over the shoulder like this. The foot went out, and down it came. Junk. And as it came down, the crowd would whistle with the axe. Did you know they did that? It would go... Boom! And then there would be a fantastic roar of applause. He would bow and walk off. Well, so there I am on a Saturday afternoon in the University of Pennsylvania's museum, you see. Well, uh, now, now why, wait a minute, before, uh, speaking of executioners, what station is this? AM and FM, New York, where are we? New York, let's go. Oh, you son of a gun. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> by George. Oh, oh yes, and, and one more thing. If you are not living in New York and you have not read The Village Voice, you have not tapped a really open, naked nerve of this city. As a matter of fact, The Village Voice is probably the, the most prize-winningest newspaper to come about in the country in the last five or six years, and unquestionably one of the most continually irritating, interesting, wildly uh, misinformative newspapers that's ever been printed in this country. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'll, I've taken The Voice myself since about 1956, and I've been hooked. Uh, the way some people get hooked on Ovaltine. This is the village voice, really. It's a weekly, it's wild, it's interesting, and it tells more about America, I think, than most of the more serious, uh, pompous newspapers that are around. And if you would like to subscribe, send your name and address to Village Voice, Gene Shepherd, Sheridan Square, New York. It's four bucks a year, and it's a big four dollars. The village voice, the village voice, the village voice, the village You want to hear the rest of the story about the knife? Well, you know, I'll tell you. The knife has always been very symbolic. Psychologists have written about it. Historians have written about it. Poets have talked about knives. Women don't quite understand this. Do you know that, that almost all the great kingdoms of the past were somehow based on a great sword? Do you know the legend of Excalibur? Yeah. Why Excalibur? Did you see the picture of Cassius Clay in one of the African republics recently in a magazine? It shows him trying to pull a sword out of the ground. He did not turn out to be King Arthur, though. <laughs> he tried to pull it. So the swords have been very important. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, there were about six kids. I don't, do they still have scout knives, really? Really, they do? Well, a scout knife is a knife that has a black bone handle. I will describe it to you exactly. It's a heavy knife, about this long. It's got a black bone handle, and right in the middle of it is that most rare of all things, the official Boy Scout seal. It's got the Boy Scout... No other knife makes it. No other knife. And it has in it about three blades that fold out. It's got a corkscrew. It's got a little screwdriver. It's got all kinds of little things, you know. It says, kids, be prepared for any emergency. 
a corkscrew. You know? I mean, you know, you know, it says, be prepared. You don't open ketchup bottles with that, you know. It says, be prepared for any emergency, kids. Own a real, genuine Dan Beard model. Boy Scout knife with a genuine bone handle. It will carry you through many a desperate experience in the woods. You know, you read this stuff, and wow. And so you would hang. The, real, the really important thing about a scout knife was hanging it from the belt loop. There was a belt loop. You'd hang it this way. And it was hung almost like a badge of honor, almost like the ceremonial sword of an officer. Yeah, yeah all officers, you know, in the big armies have little ceremonial tin swords that mean that they're mystically endowed. It's, that's right, he gets that. Yeah, they have something the PFCs don't have, I'll tell you. And so, yeah, oh, listen, I'll never forget that. I, I hate to interrupt myself here. <laughs> well, what is it? Life is one long interruption anyway, let's face it. I mean, I, I, I saw one time one of the saddest sights that I ever saw in the Army. I, know, I don't want to do an Army story, but since this is the Memorial Day, I, I want to tell one story that has to do with a sword and in the Army. Hey, where's everybody going here? Come on, get going, man. Come on, come on. You can wait. By, yeah, well, go. Hurry up. You're, everybody's, you know, I can hardly wait. So, in the Army one day, they had a dress a function, a little, one of these little functions, you know, where the officers are all dressed up and the PFCs are expected to get their uniforms pressed, wear their clean suit. And have you ever, do, do any of you know anything about the full dress ceremonial uniform of the army? You ever seen it? I mean, the real ceremonial uniform. Well, I recall a fantastic thing that I saw happen. We had this little second lieutenant, a little guy who had just gotten his ROTC commission, and the, that bright face, you know, and that, that wonderful clean set of fatigues, and he's always out there. He had new, you know, absolutely brand spanking new, beautiful, clean bars, big ones, that shone in the sun. There wasn't a scratch on them. And we had just, we had been through like about two and a half years, this outfit that I'm in. This is a new second lieutenant. He has joined us in a, a repl, what they call a repl depl, a, a, a replacement depot. And he's sharp. And one afternoon, he is going into town. We're all standing around getting our passes. And this kid comes down from the BOQ. And he is wearing a blue uniform with an orange silk stripe. He's got a blue cape with orange silk lining. He's got shoulder boards. He's got a blue hat with gold stuff running all the way around it with little thin orange piping. We were in the signal corps and our color was orange. And this guy walked down the street. He had been in the army about four months and he had bought the whole works. Stuff which guys who had been in the army a hundred years didn't have. You know, the old veterans, it went out somewhere with the Indian Wars. And he bought one. He's got a sword. He is going into town. And we're all looking at this guy, walking past. And he was one of the most pathetic sights I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's like a girl who has got a fantastic form 
one of these purple ones. I mean, these awful-looking ones. You know, the kinds with the satin runs down and the little things that run around and the artificial flowers that run down this thing, you know, with the gold puffs. And she's got a corsage on, and she's fat with glasses. And everybody else is wearing little thin black dresses. And everybody just stood and watched him. He walked right on down. He's trying to brazen it out. His cape is flying. And you can hear his sword going tink, tink, tink. And here all the GIs are standing around. You know, they're looking. They're watching this. I had never seen it before. I thought it was a mason or something. You know? I really did, you know. I, I, I didn't know what it was. And, and, and Gasser comes out of the day room. And he says, what's that? He thought it was some big party. They were having some kind of a concert. He said, hey, what's that? What are you wearing, Mac? He didn't know it was the second lieutenant. He's down there, and the guy turns around, his poor little gold shoulder boards and his sword hanging. He says, Eddie's men. Everybody stands. He says, as you were. Nobody's going to make a fool out of an officer. We're all standing there. Not one of us has made a fool out of him. <laughs> but, oh boy, that cape <laughs> with the thing hanging... Well, for years, I wanted a night, a Boy Scout night. And one day, my Uncle Carl, this is a real story. I had this drinking uncle, real terrible drunk. And I, well, the biggest thing that ever happened to Uncle Carl was the time that my Aunt Min, who was his wife, threw his teeth down the air shaft. He had these, he had these teeth. Yeah, he got from the relief. <laughs> And she came running in. She thought he was running around on her, you know. And she figured if she threw his teeth down the air shaft, he would look all shrunken. Well, you know that she threw them down the air shaft, and Carl went for the rest of his life with no teeth. He just, he just gummed the salami. Well, well, Carl one day says to me, would you like, he says, a knife. He says, I'm going to give you a knife. Well, Uncle Carl gave me a knife that had red handles. It had a silver end here and a silver end here. And the knife was shaped like a lady's leg. <laughs> you ever seen those knives? With the little shoe, you know, at the bottom? And, and if you look at the insignia under the light and you tilt it the right way, you could see an actual live lady. She is wearing an interesting costume like nothing you know well I got this knife and it was such a you know it was such a great knife I mean I love this knife <laughs> I really dug this knife and about three weeks later I go down to the Boy Scout meeting and everybody's got their scout knives out a couple of guys got you know just ordinary knives and I've got hanging from my belt a knife shaped like a lady's leg well, Mr. Gordon came up and down. He says, what is the knife? What is that you got there? I says, it's a knife, Mr. Gordon. And he says, give me that knife. You can't bring that kind of stuff around to the Boy Scouts. He says, look at that. <laughs> he had seen knives like this before. See? And he says, I'm going to keep this knife. 
Oh, by the way, that reminds me. I wonder how many third grade teachers have confiscated a lot of stuff that they don't have the guts to buy. <laughs> and on those long, quiet winter evenings, they leaf them over, you know. <laughs> I know certain pieces of literature. But here was my knife, you know, and, and, and Gordon said to me, he says, that is, he says, you can't, this is a terrible thing bringing this knife down. Now, it sounds like I'm making it up, but it's not true. I, this actually happened. He says, this is an awful thing, and I want you to go home and tell your parents you cannot come back to the Boy Scouts unless you have a note from them saying this kind of thing will never happen again. You are, you are corrupting my troop. My knife that Uncle Carl gave me. It was at that point that I began to know about this thing of what is in the eye of the beholder. And I go home and I say, Ma, Mr. Gordon took my knife away. She says, he took your knife away. And I had one of these mothers who never called anybody. She never thought in terms of calling the teacher when you, when you loused up, you know, to hit you. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. You know, she really puts you at your, on your own metal. And she says, what kind of, what knife was that? And I said, well, the one that Uncle Carl gave. She said, what knife? My mother had never seen the knife. It was one of those things I kept under the icebox in the basement, along with my spicy detectives. And she says, what knife was that? And I said, Mr. Mr. Gordon took it. And she says, Mr. Gordon took it. Why did he take your knife? He took my knife. He took my knife. She says, what knife was that? Did you take my kitchen knife down there? I said, no, no. She said, what knife? I said, Uncle Carl gave me a knife. She said, I'm going to find out about that knife. And she called up Uncle Carl. And I'm sweating in the corner. She says, Carl. This was her brother-in-law. Carl. And she knew he was a drunk in a tank. Carl, did you give Jeannie a knife? She hangs up. She says, poor Mr. Gordon. She says, you tell him, for me, that the next time you bring a knife down there like that, I'll personally kill you. <laughs> I said, what, what, what? My knife. And ever since that time, I realized that evil is only in the eye of the beholder. And speaking of evil, for the last two hours, we've been here at the limelight. And we're going to be back next week. <laughs>